Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and today I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Bruce Gordon out of Yale Divinity School. We talked about his biography of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. That's right, it's not a biography of John Calvin himself, although he did write one of those that you can find. He wrote a book on Calvin's Institutes, how they came to be, and how that particular book shifted over his lifetime. While I have you here, one thing that came to mind as I spoke with Dr. Gordon is how important it is for Christians today to be attached to their heritage. God is growing us over time, and our posture towards uh, those who have come before us ought to be one of gratitude. And so now in Canon Plus is the Puritan Collection. It is a special collection from Reformation Heritage Books that you can now find streaming on Canon Plus. You can find books from John Owen, from Jonathan Edwards, John Bunyan, John Fox, and the like. Head to canonplus.com, get a subscription. It will absolutely be worth it. There's new content coming every week. And plus, you're supporting everything that's happening at Canon. You're supporting new documentaries and more books. Without further ado, meet Professor Bruce Gordon. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Bruce Gordon. He is the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School. He is the author of books like Calvin and the Swiss Reformation. He lives in New Haven, Connecticut. Professor Bruce, thank you so much for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Jake. And you also, not in that CV, because that's a, a bit of an older book, you just published a brand new book on Zwingli. Yes. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, a, bi a biography of the Swiss reformer who is the man who sort of uh, comes before Calvin. Uh, so it's called God's Armed Prophet, uh, Zwingli. It, is, it looks at a very controversial life. Awesome. The, the person who really founds the reform tradition. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So people can go find that. Is there anywhere you want, uh, in particular, you'd want to send people to buy that book? Uh, well, you can certainly get it through Amazon, right? And uh, uh, it's or or direct from the press, but uh, easily got. Uh, it, it's through a lot, any lot of different online places. It's 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 Yale University Press. It's very easy to get find. Great, great, awesome. Well, as I was telling you beforehand, I got a hold of your book, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it's a it's sort of a biography of the institutes. So it's not necessarily a biography of its author, but yeah. more or less of the product. But before we get there, I was telling you, I would love to sort of give folks just a fresh take on the man, John Calvin. A lot of people, though they may never have read him, probably hear about him often enough and feel like, you know, maybe I don't need to read him. I get it. Uh, Calvinism, I, I understand what that is. Uh, that's sort of who I want to uh, sort of direct this interview at. Do you mind introducing us to uh, the man, John Calvin? Sure. The, the, the person I think people 
have heard of or may well think that they they know is this very severe figure who is uh, associated with killing just about everything around him sure uh, of creating a kind of version of the christian life which is devoid of anything pleasurable um and is extraordinarily judgmental and re reflects a kind of extreme moralism this is and in that sense john calvin's opponents have been incredibly successful in painting a portrait of him it has been the picture that has really stuck and it doesn't help that almost every illustration or every representation of him makes him look exactly like that uh this sort of old prophet old testament prophetic figure who is calling down the judgment of, of god upon the um ungodly right. and so that is been him. Yes, yes, he is a he is a figure of his time. He was a man of extraordinarily powerful convictions. He believed in the indivisible nature of truth. He believed that the Bible is the word of God. He believed in the reality of God's presence in the world, of judgment, but certainly of more than just judgment, of salvation and of the Christian life. And I think if I was to say briefly something that would might open up a different view of Calvin. I, I would I would go along this path and say that he was an artist. He was a lawyer. He was an extraordinarily gifted person who wrote some of the most beautiful language of his day. People who have absolutely no interest in Calvin's religious views. People who are literary scholars or appreciators of. of what's called Renaissance literature in the 16th, 17th century. They all admire Calvin as one of the great writers of his age. He was extraordinarily visionary in, in a whole range of ways. He brought together um, a vast body of learning, but that learning included things like the study of nature. Calvin, believe, Calvin loved nature. He believed that we should go out into the natural world to contemplate God's goodness, the spectacular nature of, of creation. His writings, you know, and I do in, invite people to read them, are not a kind of sort of severe moralism, but rather a kind of celebration of what he sees, the nature of God, and the nature of God is good, and God is goodness itself. And so, it's a celeb he he sees the created world as a manifestation of of god it is good yes humanity is fallen but we are called to a restoration in that created world god has revealed himself in creation god has revealed himself in scripture scripture is the primary word but scripture allows us to see god in the world around us so there's there's you know if you look at his introduction to his uh, commentary on the book of genesis it's a celebration of the wonders of creation of god as creator so i think if i was just to hint at a different uh, vision of this person is to think of him as an extraordinary gifted artist and writer whose primary goal was not to rain down judgment on people, but rather to excite them about the goodness of God. And which when put that way, all the more credit to him because he lived in a time where the stakes were very high. Everything he wrote, he could be you know, depending on which way a war turned out, he could be killed for. Or do, do you mind telling us a little bit about that context? Where did he sure. live sure. and what was going on? Sure. He, he was born in uh, 1509 in, in France. 
Uh, and he grew up as a sort of typical Catholic. But when he goes to university in Paris, at some point he undergoes a conversion experience. We don't know exactly when or exactly where, but he's converted to the gospel. And that experience transforms him. He was intending, he studied law. He was intending to be a lawyer. He was very extremely ambitious. He wanted to be the best possible lawyer, but he also aspired to be an author. He wanted to be a great writer. And so he was an ambitious young man, but yet this, this religious experience had brought him into a very controversial world where Protestantism in France was a very small minority. They were persecuted. Uh, there were efforts to, to kill those who claimed uh, the gospel. And Calvin had to flee. He had to flee his homeland, France. And he goes to uh, what's today uh, Switzerland. He goes first to the city of Basel, and then he ends up in the city of Geneva. This is uh, around 1536. And his first stay there is, is not very successful. In fact, he's expelled and, and goes away and goes and lives in, in Zurich, and then most notably in in the city of Strasbourg, which is today in France, but in those days was in the in German lands, and there, can you he mention learned, quickly? Yeah, you, sure. Could you tell me uh, what was he expelled for? He was expelled for uh, primarily for his adherence to the gospel, to the Bible, following Luther's teaching as the sole source of authority, okay. which meant rejecting the hierarchical church, and above all for Luther, uh, for Calvin, rejecting the mass, which he came to okay. see as idolatrous, and that put him uh, very much in the in the sights of his Catholic opponents who saw him as a heretic. And Calvin uh, was forced to to flee, as as many others were. He was forced to be a refugee, and this experience of being a refugee, of leaving France as a young man, is absolutely formative of Calvin as an individual. All his all, almost all his adult life, as he's living in Geneva, which is the most significant part of his life, he was a refugee, and his message was very much geared towards people. Who had been religious exiles. That was that was part of his great appeal. Is he spoke to the experience of being a, a, a refugee for the faith in the world? Now, when he's traveling to these cities, and and he's he's then you mentioned expelled from was it Basel that he was expelled from? No, from Geneva. From, and, uh, for his first stay in Geneva is a disaster, and he gets it. kicked out. <laughs> so was. What does it mean for him to be traveling? I mean, is this somewhere where when he arrives, people know? Or, or you know, how does he find himself being in some place that people are like, hey, you have to leave? Was he a man yeah. of was, yeah. was a he, man of note? Yeah, he I mean this is this is absolutely as I, I mentioned a moment ago, absolutely formative of his character. He he sees himself very much in the world of the of the Bible. He right. identifies very closely with figures both of the Old and New Testaments, as we can talk about this later. He comes later to see himself very much as a Paul to his generation. But he sees himself also in the eyes of those in the in the Bible who suffer affliction, uh, who are exiled. So this experience of wandering from city to city, depending on the sort of goodness of other people, uh, that's the making of, of John Calvin. So if we have this idea of him as this dictator in a city who simply right. decreed 
all sorts of things. Um, we've missed a massive part of his life, which was of being someone who was on the receiving end of persecution. So one thing everyone knows when they think of Martin Luther is 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 uh, putting his theses on the wall on the door, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and suddenly, you know, it's pretty easy for us to uh, us as moderns to think, okay, yeah, that's how he made his splash. That's who right. how people found out who he was because he put his name at the bottom of the theses. Yeah. Did John Calvin? How was John Calvin of note? I mean, uh, did he do something that they were thought that man has to leave this town? Or, or, or you know, what was he well, doing? The thing he did that kind of took him from being this obscure religious refugee into a person of note, a person of significance, is he wrote a little book, uh, which was called "The Institutes of the Christian Religion." It actually had a slightly different name in in its first version. He wrote this as a as um, an absolute nobody, and he wrote it as a book for the evangelicals. I'm using that term in in the 16th century, which means those who profess the gospel as the sole source of 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 the faith, okay. it's the sole source of authority. Um, he wrote this book for his fellow Frenchmen as a kind of guide to the faith. Well, this little book, which would become the Institutes of the Christian Religion as we know it, but over a period of time, uh, was a huge success. It was a kind of bestseller. And it brought this obscure French refugee out of the shadows into suddenly, who is this person? This is a significant voice. Uh, we need to know who this is. So it shot him into the to the limelight. That was kind of his moment of becoming uh, prominent. Later in in life, particularly after he returns to Geneva in 1541, he is he really makes his name not like Luther in a kind of series of dramatic moments, but over a course of being both a writer and most significantly, I would argue, as probably one of the great preachers of of the 16th century. His preaching had an enormous impact, uh, not only in the city of Geneva, but across Europe as his sermons were printed and, and, and disseminated. That's awesome. You mentioned that the Institutes, actually, what was the name of the first? You said it wasn't the Institutes. In its uh, first. It's called, and that's a, that's a very good question. Am I going to be able to call it up at the moment? <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's it uses the word institutes, but it's but it has a slightly different order okay. from. I don't have the exact title, and um, but he 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 changes it uh, a little later. But this this small book, which is the one that makes his name, um, goes through many different versions. To the version if, that if you order it through Amazon now, or if right. you've got it on your shelf, or go to a library, the version you see now was from the end of his life. Uh, in 1559. That's that's the version. But that book is the process of many different revisions that it went through during his life. And that's what the book that you know you were talking yep. about that I've done is about. It's about the growth of a book, because my argument is that that book is very autobiographical. Okay. It, the growth of the book is also the growth of the man over, you know, 25 years. And and it, it maps his own personal and theological and historical development. Now, I imagine if I brought that book, um, which the Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's made up of four books. Yeah. Um, if, I, if, if I took that in sort of a, just your modern day church 
as like sort of a Sunday school resource, you know, we're going to go through Calvin's institutes. Um, I imagine the impression that that class would give is sort of like, okay, this is sort of higher theology. This is a very mature theology class, you know, like let's sort of, uh, uh, you know, it could, it, it, it looks rigorous or it, you know, that's, that's sort of, I imagine the impression it would get from people, but you were mentioning just a second ago that Calvin wrote this for, uh, just sort of as an onboarding thing for his, for, for Frenchmen there that were, uh, that believed in the gospel and, and were sort of, what is this religion? Can you talk a little bit about that? Where did, sure. I see. So this is, this is the, this is, this is, I, I, um, fairly regularly teach a course at, at Yale, which is where we read the, the Institute's cover to cover. Awesome. And it's a huge amount of fun because we get a wide range of people in the class from people who are who are paid up members of the sort of, you know, reformed church through to people who would never imagine in their life wanting to have any connection to Calvin, but are a bit curious to read what he's had to say. And it's wonderful that the thing that, that comes out of this is that almost everyone says, whether they're uh, on one end of the sort of more conservative reform tradition or, you know, ranging through to the agnostics, um, is that they'll almost all tell you it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Interesting. Everybody thought it was going to be a theological textbook. Yep. And what they discover is that it's anything but, and I'll, I'll let you in on a, on a secret. Calvin hated the word theology. He never <laughs> used it. Never. He, he, he avoided it because he associated it with the sort of medieval scholastic theology, which is for him useless learning because it speculates about questions of like God's essence or uh, issues that he says, we have no clue about. And we have no way of knowing the answers to those questions. Yes, God has an essence, but God did not give it to us to know about that. Sure. And so what Calvin, so he uses the word doctrine, a doctrine. And he's, you know, what doctrine for Calvin is that which has been revealed to us. Basically, what is it that God has chosen for us to know? And that's what's appropriate to us. It's not for us to speculate about a whole bunch of things that we can never know the answer to. He was a and fierce, fierce uh, aggressor against speculation. He talks a lot yeah, about that. I mean, that's vain speculation, yes. as, as he would, as he would call it. Basically, he saw that as the height of pride, uh, trying to find answers to things that God has not given us to know. And he's saying. What scripture is, is God speaking to us yep. and God revealing to us what we need to know for salvation. That's All good. that's necessary for salvation has been revealed to us in the word. Uh, those things that we're not, not meant to know are not given to us. And so, so that doesn't mean that scripture is easy to interpret. It doesn't mean that the Bible is always straightforward. Calvin had very sophisticated views on, on interpreting the Bible and its difficulties. He's one of the first people who tell you it can be extremely difficult to, to interpret. But nevertheless, so that the whole of theology, to use that word that he didn't like to use, but the whole of doctrine is about the explication, the explanation the interpretation of the word of God. It's about none of these other questions. It that doing theology 
an expression he wouldn't have used, sure. uh, is about explaining the word of God. That's what you do in preaching. That's what you do in biblical interpretation. It's what you do in teaching. It's what you do in you know living the Christian life, which is kind of exemplifying the message of scripture. All of it is about the interpretation of the Bible. And it, all the rest of that stuff is simply wandering into territory where you're not, there's a no trespassing sign. Right. Right. One thing I have always enjoyed about uh, reading and and especially reading a particular individual over a long period of time, you know, over the Mm -hmm. length of their life is you Mm -hmm. find that, you know, as they mature, they go in different directions, you know, so uh, we had on um, Dr. Eglinton to talk about Herman Bovink. And he kind oh, of, yes. he talked about you know here are ways uh, the early Bovink yes tremendous biography early Bovink and there's and there's the later Bovink and C.S. Lewis has very interesting uh, sort of changes or or just ways in which he matures mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Calvin h- how would you describe the renditions of the Institutes over time which direction yeah. does he go in or does he change directions or is it the same direction just more matured. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably more of the latter. He okay. doesn't change his mind. Okay. But he, Calvin was an, uh, one of the great autodidacts. He never actually studied theology. He didn't go to a theological faculty. He was never a priest, like unlike Luther or Zwingli or these other figures. Uh, he was a lawyer. In fact, we don't even know when he was ordained. We don't even know actually officially if he was ordained. We kind of assume he was, but we have no record of it. He certainly administered the sacraments and, and preached, but we we know nothing. And, and Calvin never thought it was important to tell us about that. So he didn't go to a theological, he doesn't have a formal theological training. Credentials. But, he, but he's an extraordinary autodidact and and a a voracious reader and studier. So the whole of Calvin's life following his conversion in the early 1530s is this extremely rigorous program of study. And we know quite a lot about what he read and what he studied. He he studied, he had a background in the the classics of Greek and, and Roman literature. He had a background in the study of law. So he threw himself into the study of the church fathers, you know, particularly Augustine, which was his 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 favorite. But he read all the medieval theologians. He he had a strong attachment to Thomas Aquinas. He knew Aquinas well. He disagreed with him in many places, but he also agreed with him in many places. But he read, he 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 did what we would call now sort of reading the tradition. He read everything. And one of the things you see in the Institutes is the fruits of that reading so that the institutes gets bigger and bigger as calvin is and we can tell for instance there are more references to medieval theology because we know in that period he was reading a lot of it we know that he you know we can map his kind of intellectual development through the different editions of the institutes as they become larger and he but there's there but there were other aspects of it One was that from 1541, when he's back in Geneva, he's preaching three, four times a week. uh, And he's preaching uh, what's called uh, Lectio Continua. He's preaching right through the books of the Bible from start to finish. He's also writing commentaries 
on on these books. So he's doing this at the same time. So that intense engagement with the Bible is reflected in the growth of his institutes. We can see the biblical references becoming, you know, more and more extensive. But there's another aspect of it that 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 shapes the growth of the institutes, and that is during his life from 1541 until his death in 1564, he's involved in a whole series of theological controversies. And as he gets involved in these controversies, he's writing, he's speaking, he's, and these controversies are reflected in the institutes. He's he's debating with a Lutheran about the nature of of faith. He's debating with people about the sacraments. He's debating with people about the role of uh, political authority in, in, in the church. And as he's having these debates, his institutes is reflecting his thinking, his developing thinking on these subjects. So it's an incredibly dynamic work that's reflecting the circumstances he's in, the debates he's in, his study of the Bible, his constant preaching, and this ongoing um, commitment that he has to the very end of his life of endless reading of the theological tradition, not only of the Western church, but he was extremely well uh, read in the Greek fathers, the, the, the fathers of the Greek church as well, with whom he had a lot, a lot of, and for whom he had a lot of good things to say. You mentioned, you know, the, the, the generalists, the Christian generalists sort of approach yeah. of, of the podcast and, and having a lot of people on. And what I found is a lot of the, a lot of the men who have made huge impacts in the world were all mm -hmm. generalists themselves. And yep. and we're all you know very well read and could sort of traverse and over here and mm -hmm. over here and and you were mentioning uh, Calvin being well versed also with the Greek literature and in I think it's book one almost right away that he talks about the labyrinth. Um, one of his one of his favorite images. Right, and so you know early on I recognize Calvin as just someone who is like man this is very fun. He, he's not uh, he's not narrow and siloed himself off to God's world and God's creation. Um, no, he no. I mean, he believed believed passionately when he sets up an academy in Geneva in 1541. He believes he he believes um, absolutely that in the in the study of what we would call the natural sciences as a ways of discerning the secrets of creation. And he says the Bible is, to use an expression which comes later, is not a book of science in that sense. But it, it is about the truth of God's creation. But other forms of science can help us to understand more what's in the Bible because they give us specific knowledge about how the stars are, how the how the universe is, how plants grow, how animals live, all these things which interested Calvin enormously. He believed that what we might call secular learning was all part of this, this one body of, of truth. Awesome. Awesome. He uh, now. Do you want? I would be curious. How much does Calvin show up in your new book on Zwingli? Well, this is yeah. This is a, a fascinating. Zwingli was in in Zurich, so the Swiss of Zurich. He and he is a contemporary of Martin Luther. So this is the 1520s. This is before Calvin is. Calvin is still a good Catholic at this point. He's long before his his um, uh, conversion. But Zwingli is the person who really develops the tenets of, of the Reformed faith. And that means the doctrine of the sacraments, the idea that there are two sacraments and that the Lord's Supper is essentially a memorial, which is an idea that Calvin builds on and develops, but essentially comes out of 
of Zwingli. He has the argument, you know, it's Zwingli who formulates the idea of the covenantal relationship between God uh, and and the church, uh, the whole relationship between temporal authority, political authority, and the church. These, these sort of ideas which become foundations of the Reformed Church are coming out in the 1520s from Zwingli. Now, he dies very suddenly, very controversially in 1531 in battle. He's a, and, and Luther and he have an absolutely ferocious debate about the Lord's Supper. They, they debate uh, whether in what way you can even speak about Christ being present in the sacrament. That seems like a very arcane debate, but it ripped apart the Reformation and split into what we would now identify as the Reformed tradition and the Lutheran tradition. Calvin always saw himself as a man of the church, and one of the tasks he believed he'd been called to, to do was to reunite the Protestants with been torn apart by these debates in the in the 1520s. So he thought he could bring the Reformed and the Lutherans back together again. And he worked very hard at it. And in fact, his own theology is perhaps somewhat more accommodating of Lutheran ideas than um than some of the the the, the more severe Swiss. But he 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 thought he could could do this. Now he wasn't successful in the in the end. But he, because of this, he actually avoided referring to Zwingli as much as possible. He actually just stayed away from using, because Zwingli was such a controversial figure that Calvin understood that if he was going to make any progress with the Lutherans, he just could it was, Zwingli was too much of a red button. He couldn't, couldn't go there. Right. So Calvin always said, oh, I didn't read Zwingli. I don't really know what he was saying. I don't I don't agree with him on the Lord's Supper. But the truth is, the kind of unwritten truth is that we know that he did read Zwingli quite extensively. And, you know, certain arguments that Calvin makes, like associating um, baptism with circumcision in, in the Old Testament, those are ideas that come from Zwingli. Calvin, Calvin has inherited, as a second-generation reformer, a huge amount from Zwingli and Zwingli's contemporaries, but it wasn't always good politics for him to mention that. Right, right. So um, now, can you give us what was the timeline breakdown you mentioned? So Calvin is trying to sort of the the break with the Lutherans and the Reformed tradition has happened. Where was Calvin in relation to that? So the the break with, uh, between. Um, Luther and Zwingli over the Lord's Supper is really happening in the period from 1525 onwards. Okay. Famously, they meet, Luther and Zwingli meet in 1529, trying to resolve this debate. They are not successful. So this is during the 1529, uh, 1520s that the Reformation is just ripped apart on this issue of the Lord's Supper. And, and you know, it's, it's a theological issue, but it, it, it's more than that. It reflected quite different attitudes towards what the Reformation should be. And it has, you know, on a more sort of philosophical, theological level, it reflected quite different views about how God is present in the world. So it's about, it's not, it's not a quarrel about nothing. It was, it was about significant matters, but it, it meant that the Reformation from an early stage in the 1520s is a divided movement. Got it. And that's catastrophic. It's great news for the Catholics, right? Uh, but it's very bad news for for the Reformation. And then you've had this other split 
from 1525 onwards, which are the so-called Anabaptists, who are the sort of more radical movement. And so the, the Reformation in the 1520s, which is when just when it's sort of picking up steam, is also splitting at the same time. And that's the world that Calvin inherits, you know, 10 years later, 1534, 1535, when he's come into Switzerland and he's had this conversion experience and he's now embraced the gospel. Um, and then his own really prominent career, which begins in 1541, when he returns to Geneva, where he'll stay for the rest of his life. Uh, so he's of the next generation that's trying to deal with the fallout of all those problems of the 1520s. And he sees himself, as I mentioned before, as having a particular calling as the person who might be able to, to knit this all together again. He's not successful, but Calvin is, and we, this goes back to your original question, we tend to see Calvin as a highly divisive figure, but in fact, he saw himself, he was absolutely focused on the visible church and was very heavily focused on trying to reunite a broken church. That's a, that's a story that he's rarely given credit for. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for your time. We very much appreciate it. You've got a new biography on Zwingli. I was mentioning your uh, biography on the Institutes of the Christian Religion, is, and you have also a biography on Calvin as well, correct? Yeah, yeah I did a biography of Calvin. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, folks can go find those at Amazon. I assume they're all through Yale. Yeah, uh, Yale, Yale. The, the Institute's book that you were referring to is from Princeton. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And actually, very last question, since you live in New Haven. Uh, I actually live, live in Vermont now, but I oh, still work in New Haven. Uh, what's the best pizza? Uh, well, you know, that, that, that of course, now, now you've put your finger on a on controversy. Even more, even, even more controversial than yeah. Luther and, and, and Swingley. But um, if you ask me, uh, and I'm not an expert, but Pepe's Pizza is Perfect. the best one. Awesome. Well, Zoom's about to kick us off. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks, you. Thanks, Jake, for asking me. Of course. Cheers. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.